0: you're listening to the globalist first broadcast on the 28th of december 2022 on monocle 24 the globalist in association with ubs Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up.
1: This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren
0: will live. Ukraine's airstrikes up the stakes with Russia, but will proposals for a peace summit ring in the new year? We'll be getting arty with Ama Rose Abrams and newsy with Ruth Michelson, and we'll be hearing all about Sun Pride as the founder of the groundbreaking Asian art exhibition gets ready to bring it back
1: home. It's very simple. We want to raise awareness and respect for the gay community.
0: More from Patrick Sun later on The Globalist, live from London. And well, first, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. Hundreds of residents in the Ukrainian city of Kherson are fleeing as Russian attacks intensify. American officials are considering new COVID restrictions on travellers from China. And Taiwan's defence ministry says it's monitoring Chinese warships and aircraft near the island. And I think we can start off with a little bit of a rustle through the morning's front pages for more, uh, particularly on one of those stories with uh, our long-time Monocle contributor Ruth Michelson, who's in Istanbul. Morning to you, Ruth. Good morning, Guy. And uh, let's uh, kick off, Ruth, with the story that you've um, highlighted in the Washington Post about these uh, COVID restrictions, which the US is, is talking about introducing on arrivals from China
2: absolutely so um i mean there's some pretty disturbing video in both the washington post and the new york times um showing overcrowded hospitals in china people uh being forced to sleep in in the corridors and some coverage about how overstretched chinese medical facilities are um, now that there's essentially been an internal lift on um travel restrictions and Um, and restrictions on um, uh, quarantine and things like this. Uh, The New York Times mentioning that the easing of international travel restrictions that was announced earlier this week is basically signalling the final end of China's zero COVID policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're seeing now that there's some debate about what these new The lifting of these new travel restrictions actually means in practice.
0: It's very interesting the uh, the the line the Washington Post has taken. If you look at their story online, there's a social media post or social media photograph right at the top it's 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 it looks very dynamic actually because it's slightly blurry there's a bit of motion in there and it's shot at the proverbial dutch angle as well and it just looks like a massively overcrowded improvised hospital room uh with people with saline drips bags on on stands hanging in the air uh Crowds of concerned people hanging around, some people in surgical scrubs, face masks on everybody. Uh, It looks like we're almost back to the the early days of the pandemic.
2: Absolutely. I mean, those scenes, in a way, they're familiar to the rest of us in other parts of the world from earlier parts of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing now is that China is trying to adapt to a world where, you know, travel restrictions have been lifted elsewhere, and now we're seeing what's happening inside of China as they're trying to rapidly change um, what was a very firm policy, um, and it changed seemingly almost overnight following protests um, against the zero COVID policies. Um, and now we're seeing the reactions to that both on the ground and how people are reacting to the prospect mm. of travel. So there's also reporting, um, for example, in Reuters, um, AFP covered by The Guardian, um, talking about how Chinese people are rushing to book plane, ch- mm. plane tickets to be able to travel outside of the country for the first time in, in several years.
0: And it's interesting the way the Washington Post has covered this as well. It's a nice bit of data journalism because, you know, again, getting reliable information out of China has become more difficult in recent years, what with all the restrictions on on reporting. Uh, So it's tracked hundreds of posts on uh, the social media like Weibo and Douyin. And uh, reviewed material that was reposted on Twitter and other sites. So a triumph of data journalism, Ruth. Uh, but let's let's move on to your your second story again from Washington Post. Um, the saga, as you say, uh, keeps on going for George Santos, a newly elected Republican congressman for New York who hasn't even been sworn in yet. What's he been up to?
2: <laughs> well, what he's been up to is apparently lying about his resume and <laughs> biography. So don't all um, politicians do that? He Perhaps, we would hope not on this scale. So <laughs> um, so this is from some New York Times reporting um, saying that he admitted to lying about graduating from college um, he admitted to making misleading claims that he worked for City Group or, City Group, excuse me, or Goldman Sachs and he said he had once owned, uh, family owned a real estate portfolio of 13 properties. Earlier this week he admitted he was not a landlord and actually um, was behind um, in terms of uh, he acknowledged owing thousands in unpaid rent. So pretty choice quote in the Washington Post from one of his many admissions um, he said the way it's stated on the Resume. Doing work for. I have worked for, not on or at or in. He said he had learned a lesson, but that doesn't mean I'm some fictional character.
0: Well, is his name actually George Santos? I'm wondering who's the, the 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 grand chaps of the the Republican Party.
2: A a fair question. I mean, there's also there's some more that he's been accused of of lying of. So he uh, didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. He said Uh, this is a quote in The Guardian. I'm embarrassed and I'm sorry for having embellished my resume. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life.
0: He does do a non-apology apology, though. If I disappointed anyone by my resume embellishment, I'm sorry. So, you know, it's, it's one of these non-apology apologies. It's a speciality of politicians around the world, it would seem. Um, we're staying in the US, Ruth, because this blizzard of the century um, that we've been hearing about, and the, you're highlighting this from CNN edition. Um, you know, everybody's been, been, uh, been, been following this, haven't they?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, yes called the so-called blizzard of the century, overtaken large parts of uh, northern New York state where Buffalo is. Unfortunately, at least 27 people mm. are estimated to have died uh, due to the um, due to the incredibly cold conditions or being um, snowed into their cars. And so there are apparently, um, according to the Guardian, um, emergency personnel going car to car searching in case there are motorists buried inside, which is a sort of terrifying visual. Um, And at the same time, there's also been um, this is reporting in the New York Times, widespread travel chaos, um, thousands of travellers stranded at airports. L- large amounts of this is due to uh, the actions of Southwest Airlines, which cancelled more than 2,900 flights on Monday and then scrapped at least 2,500 every day for the next mm. couple of days. Um, and so this is leaving people around the US stranded and unable to get anywhere.
3: It's
0: a very interesting question how this story gained such... Um, traction internationally because there are extreme weather events around the world on a regular basis and death tolls far worse in many cases than we find in the United States in this particular incident and yet this is the one which is gaining traction and what does that tell us about you know how we value life in particular places
2: I mean, I think that there's an obvious answer there in terms of where gets the most news coverage and that, you know, we should also be covering extreme weather events that are happening, for example, a massive drought happening across parts of um, eastern Africa at the moment. Um, And then there's also a sort of bigger narrative question, right, which is that this is a question about climate change and that a lot of this coverage that we're seeing even coming out of the U.S., um, doesn't mention that the frequency and the intensity of these kinds of extreme weather events are climate change related.
0: Mm. Um, and finally, let's just uh, finish with something a little more lighthearted in uh, Mercia in Spain. Uh, we, we've got one of those nude calendars once again. Uh, a, a, a tiny village created a hit nude calendar, says The Guardian.
2: I'm interested in you saying we've got one of those nude calendars once again. Which (laughs) is there's
0: there's been lots of them. I mean, of course, we had the film Calendar Girls, didn't we? And then, you know, after after the Women's Institute calendar in in the UK, it seemed to become a you know fashion. Everybody was stripping off. Nobody could keep their kit on for a calendar.
2: Well, this calendar, in case you're interested, retails at um, uh, bargain nine euros, and for that you get.
0: I think we've, uh, we, we'll never find out what, uh, what happens in this particular calendar, which would be a great shame. I'm sorry about that, Ruth. Uh, Ruth Michelson there, thank you very much for, for joining us on The Globalist with the latest from the Morning's front pages. let's turn to Ukraine, where there's been little rest over the festive season and that's not just because Orthodox Christmas isn't celebrated until January. Kiev's forces have been on the attack with drone strikes on Russia's Engels airbase and advances on the strategic city of Kremlin. But there's also been a renewed Russian assault on Kherson and concern about what talks between the leaders of Russia and Belarus might mean. Small wonder the Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has been talking up the idea of a peace summit in February. Well, we're joined now on The Globalist by Alex Kokchorov, risk analysis, analyst... I'll try that again, Alex. A risk analyst on Russia, Ukraine, Belarus and Eurasia at IHS Market, which is a provider of information and analytics for governments and financial markets. Welcome back to The Globalist, Alex. Um, I actually wanted to go with something else to start with, which is uh, I'm just reading about this UN report stating there's almost 7,000 confirmed civilian deaths in Ukraine and the numbers may be much higher. That's, that's very worrying.
4: Well, uh, these figures are the confirmed figures which have been verified by the UN, but we need to understand that uh, a lot of the deaths have uh, have occurred in the areas which are under Russian occupation uh, and where uh, the UN cannot go. So I would expect that these figures are much, much higher. I've seen estimates by the Ukrainian authorities that in Mariupol alone, mm. Um, between 80 and 100,000 people have died due to the uh, Russian invasion.
0: I mean, that's that's uh, <laughs> some inflation from those official figures, isn't it? The, the UN yeah. saying it could be higher, but that's, that's magnitudes higher, isn't it? If,
4: if, well, you know, honestly, I would not be surprised about the Mariupol figures because uh, the way uh, the Russian forces have been um, behaving... During this siege of Mariupol, uh, when the civilians could not leave, and we've seen multiple incidents uh, of Russian tanks just uh, um, shooting at uh, residential buildings, including high rises. Uh, the you know, if if you look at the scale of damage of Mariupol mm. uh, in Mariupol, um, you would not be surprised that that many people may have died i'm not saying that this is a definitive figure but these are estimates mm. uh, just before the invasion population of mariupol was about 450,000 people so it would represent every sixth or fifth which is obviously a massive number
0: and when the ukrainian forces liberate a city like kherson for example Is there are we seeing sort of before and after figures in terms of estimates of of civilian casualties there that give us an idea of what the true scale might be?
4: Yes, we do because uh, the uh, Ukrainian authorities they routinely find um, uh, the. Uh, burial sites in deoccupied in liberated towns and cities such as, you know, initially Bucha and near Kiev, then Izium, Kupiansk, Lyman and, you know, the latest uh, Kherson, which was liberated in November. Uh, so, you know, when we see more Ukrainian towns and cities being liberated from the Russian occupation, uh, those numbers will rise because UN – will get access to all those locations.
0: Talking about Kherson, we're hearing reports this morning and we're talking about it on the Globalist that uh, the authorities are advising residents to leave. It sounds like the situation there is now quite severe.
4: Well, it is because now Kherson finds itself where other cities such as Kharkiv or Mykolaiv have been for uh, for months during this war. It is very much on the front line It is only separated from the Russian positions by the Dnieper River. It is quite wide Mm -hmm. in Kherson, um, but nevertheless, we're talking about, you know, the other bank of the river um, from where the Russians are shelling uh, residential areas of Kherson. Uh, So the danger for Kherson is now much higher because uh, people people can die in their own homes because of uh, the ongoing shelling. Uh, which uh, the Russians are conducting on what they officially claim is now a Russian city. Mm.
0: I think this was always the fear, wasn't it, that when Kherson was retaken by Ukrainian forces, that you would just have Russia digging in artillery positions on the opposite side of the river and they would do exactly what they're doing now.
4: Yes, uh, the Russian forces establish in Uh, new military positions on the other side of the river was established before the, uh, it it was observed before the uh, Russian withdrawal from Kherson. Uh, So obviously it is in Ukraine's interest to uh, try to advance further Mm. and to move the positions away from the city. Uh, Sadly, again, Kherson is now in very much a similar situation in which Mykolaiv and uh, Kharkiv uh, were for a month during this war, and only successful Ukrainian counteroffensives, which pushed the uh, the Russian forces from the immediate vicinity of the cities, had improved the situation for those cities.
0: Yeah, because unfortunately, I mean, it's the very definition of a of a pyrrhic victory, isn't it? You retake the city, but then ensure its destruction.
4: Well, yes, it is. But, you know, that's the only way. The only way for Ukraine to save its civilians is to recapture uh, those cities and towns uh, taken by the Russians uh, and, you know, for obvious reasons to offer civilians evacuation to safer areas uh, of the country um that's the sad reality of the war
0: and is there any sign of those advances say you know across the river to where those artillery positions are i mean the the russians were blowing the bridges as they left weren't they so how can the uh, ukrainian forces move forward uh,
4: the only way to move forward would be to conduct uh, landings uh, on the other side of the riverbank um and uh while you know Ukrainian forces would very much want to do that, but uh, that's quite a risky operation. So uh, I'm sure that any decision making uh, in this regard um, will be very very careful to uh, to make sure that uh, such an operation is successful. Uh, I think the main focus of Ukrainian forces is currently in other areas in Luhansk region and potentially Zaporizhia region, uh, but uh, you know in the longer run it would definitely make sense for Ukrainians to to try to recapture land on the other side of the Dnipro river near mm. Kherson um, in, in order to push the Russians away from from the city
0: now we've been hearing about these talks between the leaders of Belarus and Russia and you know, there's some been some question about what's going on here is Belarus going to be taking a more active role on Russia's side or is this a case of misdirection to try and pull Ukrainian forces away from their uh, objectives and uh, towards buttressing defenses towards Belarus
4: Honest answer, we do not know definitively. We know that uh, Lukashenko in Belarus has been under quite a bit of pressure from the Kremlin to take a more active role in this war. And his um, room for manoeuvre, is space for manoeuvre is quite limited right now because of of Belarusian financial and economic dependence on Russia. Um, But whether Belarus will openly join the war, we don't know. At the moment the Ukrainian armed forces, which are monitoring the developments in Belarus, are saying that they're not observing information of uh, attack forces uh, on Belarusian side of the territory. So even if there are some plans um, for another invasion of northern Ukraine from Belarus, um, it's not immediate or imminent. Um, But uh, I think both Ukraine and uh, Western countries are going to be monitoring these developments, uh, and if the situation changes, uh, there will be uh, reaction to to that. But even even you know, without the threat of immediate uh, invasion, uh, the 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 risk of the th- the risk of a potential invasion, the threat mm. uh, is quite serious, and it necessitates Ukraine to keep quite a significant force on the northern border. It's a long border, one thousand eighty four kilometers, um with Belarus. Um and it diverts Ukrainian military effort from other areas, including Donbass and Kherson.
0: So just briefly Alex to to, to finish with uh, the the this idea that's been floated of a peace summit in february by vladimir zelensky Uh, is this part of the incentive for that so that ukraine doesn't get overstretched
4: well ukraine obviously wants peace but the only way peace can come is via uh, the occupation of currently russian occupied areas Um, i'm skeptical that it can be achieved through uh, peace talks or negotiations um, and it's much more realistic that uh, it can only be achieved by um, Ukrainian battlefield successes. Um, I think Ukrainian, U- U- Ukrainian government is uh, pushing with these initiatives now because they expect that the freshly mobilized troops in Russia will become available to the Russian MOD uh, by some point in spring 2023 uh, to increase the, the Russian force level in Ukraine. So Ukrainians are trying to uh, to do something and change the situation on the ground for themselves to a more favourable position to themselves uh, before this happens.
0: That's right. great to bring us up to date on that, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. That's Alex Kokcharov joining us on The Globalist on Monocle 24. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Officials in Ukraine are encouraging Kherson residents to leave as Russian attacks intensify. Cars are queuing up at the checkpoint leading out of the city with hundreds of people trying to flee. Kherson was liberated from Russian control in November. U.S. officials are considering new restrictions on travellers from China. That's to curb the spread of coronavirus. Beijing is seeing a surge in cases. Japan, India and Malaysia have already announced they'll tighten rules on arrivals from China. Requirements may include negative Covid tests. Taiwan's defence ministry says it's monitoring Chinese warships and aircraft near the island. It says three Chinese air force planes have entered Taiwan's so-called air defence identification zone. Beijing carried out a big military drill around Taiwan in August as well. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 7.22 in the morning here in London. You're listening to The Globalist with a slightly stumbly Guy Delaunay. And it's time now for an arts news roundup with the arts and culture journalist Amma Rose Abrams. Welcome to The Globalist, Amma Rose. Uh, let's talk first of all about Oscar shortlists. This is all very exciting. You want to focus on the uh, the documentary director Nan Goldham and uh, all, all her activism. Uh, sorry, it's not she's not directed at all, but Nan Goldham's activism on the whole Sackler scandal.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the story has run and run. Um, I mean, it's great to have this kind of excitement building taster of what's to come at the Oscars. And uh, with this arts focused documentary made by Laura Poitras, who made Mm. Six of Four, which won in the category in 2015, it's quite exciting to see this story, which has captured the art world and beyond, you know, about funding, names on buildings, and then that obviously linked to the opioid scandal and the Sackler family. So there's a lot in there.
0: I feel like uh, getting down to the VNA and just checking whether they've removed the name yet.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We've all got to double check. Um, and it's just really the documentary also goes into Nan Golden's kind of private life, her childhood growing up and what took her on the road that she went down, leaving home early, taking these amazing photographs in the late 70s and 80s, which have made her such a famous artist.
0: And she's uh, made all these protests at all these different museums. Did she ever get to the VNA, uh, or was a uh...
3: I don't think she did. I think it started with the National Portrait Gallery. They were the first ones mm. to take down the name. And I think that that was an in-person protest. But other than that, I don't think she's made it to the VNA. Are
0: there any other uh, items on the Oscars shortlist that you're particularly excited about?
3: I am excited about Fire of Love because I think that just captured everyone's imaginations. Um, It was such a wonderful film and did, you know, quite well in the box office. And then also the uh, Leonard Cohen documentary, um, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, which I think will be, you know, I think that will be really interesting to see. I haven't seen that and would love to see it.
0: Now, thinking about artists, uh, I want to – well, you wanted to focus on Jane Fonda selling her outsider art trove at Christie's. So, you know.
3: (laughs) Well, this is um, outsider art. I think the people that are passionate about collecting outsider art are extremely passionate about it. And in recent years, we have had all these conversations in the art world about what we value and why – Um, It doesn't always translate to the market, but this artist, these artists in particular, I think she started collecting this work with um, works by Arthur and Thornton Dial, Mm. uh, father and son artists, um, and they are self-trained southern uh, black artists. And I think she, after discovering the dials, she then started to collect more and more and more of this work. And in recent years, it's got, more and more attention, and I think they're thought to sell for between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars so I and it's not cheap.
0: why is she getting rid?
3: I think that she is she she's looking to i think raise money and raise the profile of these artists every mm. time somebody sells a, a group of works like this it adds to the value of all the other works that are out there so i think it's a double pronged uh, attack that she's going for and uh let's
0: talk about what's coming up next year because we're almost at the end of 2022 uh, what exhibitions are you looking forward to next year
3: i am really looking forward to um the vermeer at the Rijksmuseum. their first ever <laughs> vermeer exhibition which seems uh hard to believe but that's going to feature 28 paintings by the artist and he has such a small Mm. and i think that's just going to be a big hit of the year so well loved and such a phenomenal artist and a great opportunity to see all those works together um another really exciting show that will be at the uh, vna opening in february and that is donatello sculpting the renaissance we talk a lot about renaissance painters We haven't talked about Donatello for a while so I think that's going to be really exciting and just a wonderful opportunity to see these I mean still after all this time he's considered one of the best sculptors that ever lived so I think this is something really exciting and uh, something to look forward to and then there's a the peter doig which is coming up at the courthold and that's mm. got new and recent paintings by him and again a much loved painter he recently relocated back from trinidad to london and i think these might be uh paintings of london which will be something quite exciting and, and
0: when's that opening
3: that is opening on the 10th of february
0: Right then, I'll be heading down to the Courtauld then. That's terrific. Thank you very much, Amarose, for joining us. That's the arts and culture journalist, Amarose Abrams.
3: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients it's about having the right ideas of course but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts that's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. 7:28
0: 7:28 here in London, and let's stay with art for the final item on today's Globalist. Because Sun Pride is coming home. Patrick Sun set up the Sun Pride Foundation in 2014 to promote LGBTQ plus art in and around Asia. And after two large-scale exhibitions in Taipei and Bangkok, Sun Pride is presenting its first exhibition in three years and its first in Patrick's hometown of Hong Kong. The new show opened on Christmas Eve and runs until April. And Patrick's been giving the lowdown to Monocle's Naomi Shu. Elegant.
1: It's very simple. We want to raise awareness and respect for the gay community. And we've been trying to do that through the exhibition and preservation of art. Uh, And at the beginning, we held um, an exhibition in Taipei at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Taipei. Uh, And then subsequently, we did another show at the Bangkok Art and Culture Center. Now you might notice that we have always anchored our show uh, at public institutions, including the upcoming exhibition at Daigun Hong Kong. Uh, I think one of the main reasons we do that is not only because of the scale of the exhibition we're presenting, but the fact that it's a public uh, museum or art institution is very inviting to to the general public. So we're able to talk uh, not just to the gay community, but to reach beyond our echo chamber and uh, hopefully create a platform of dialogue with the general public. What is it about art in particular that makes it a good medium for exploring these issues? Well, I believe art is one of many mediums to explore LGBTQ issues. You know, um, I mean, there will be movies and novels and and also support people who want to parade and uh, just different ways of supporting. I believe art is one of the many ways and when i first started in 2014 i thought there'll be people doing this already but apparently uh maybe not in this scale and perhaps not in public institutions i think in asia we're not as open as maybe our counterparts in the western society there are still a lot of people living in fear and in the closet and i hope that a show like this will tell them that you belong uh, in the public eye, and there's no need to hide. And hopefully, they could come out and uh, be proud of themselves. The show is titled Myth, uh, Myth Makers Spectral Synthesis III. You know, From a subtitle, you will see that is the third iteration of our um, touring exhibition, Spectral Synthesis. Now, Myth Makers uh, takes uh, uh, circles around the core notion of queer mythology and use it as a starting point to explore different uh, LGBTQ perspectives. Uh, we have many artists. Uh, we have uh, over 100 works from more than 50 artists in representing Asian and its diaspora. And Daigoon is a huge space. You know, we have, uh, we'll be taking up the entire JC Contemporary as well as the Annex Hall F, which comes to a total of more than 12,000 square feet. So you would expect a really, Great spectacular show. Uh, and we will have many uh, artists from the old masters like uh, Bupen Kaka, Alfonso Osorio, or uh, Aiko Hozoe. You know, these are well-known artists uh, who have passed away, but they have left a legacy. Uh, and then we also have prominent artists in the international art scenes, such as like uh Sin or Yan Vo. Uh, or Zheng Shuli, who represented Taiwan in the uh, in the Venice Biennale. And of course, we also have Hong Kong artists, local artists like Samson Young, Alan Bao, Trevor Young, and we also have commission work. So there will be a lot to see.
2: What are some of the highlights that you're looking forward to, whether it's an artist or a particular work?
1: The commission work. The commission work, you know, um, uh, just to name a few, like, both Alan and Samson, Samson Young and Alan Bao, are doing new commission work for us. Uh, and I also want to see how the curator would justify old master and new artists. like the names I mentioned, there would be like Buben there would also be younger Indian artist Chicha Kanesh. So this would be interesting juxtaposition, and I really look forward to that. Yes. And I must say, we feel extremely lucky that, uh, you know, we are co-partnering this with Daigun. Uh, I mean, it, it, of course, is a well-renowned institution. Uh, and, and it also happens to have this history of Daigun that allows us to explore further. Uh, for example, you know, it used to be the police and prison compound. So it gives us a, a, a platform to talk about, like, the criminal history of homosexuals. And also situation, uh, uh the situation of Daekun on Hollywood Row, which is still considered a gay neighborhood, would allow us to talk about like the the nightlife, you know, the night scene of uh uh the uh, gay life in Hong Kong.
0: And that was Patrick Sun from the Sun Pride Foundation in conversation with Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant. Well, that's about it for today's programme. Thanks very much to our producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our studio manager was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there'll be more music on the way. I'll be live with The Briefing at midday in London, and I'll be back with The Globalist at the usual time tomorrow. I'm Guy Delaunay. Thanks very much for tuning in.